0: Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Tuesday the 7th of December. It's a cold grey morning here in TW11 and we begin with sad news from California and that is that Medina Spirit, the much talked about horse who finished first in the Kentucky Derby and whose disqualification remains pending, has collapsed and died after a workout at Santa Anita Park. Um, Dr. Jeff Blair, the uh, former American Association of Equine Practitioners president speaking from the AAP convention in Nashville, uh, told the Paulick Report, I spoke to the attending veterinarian. When they got to him on the track, he'd already expired. I'll have them draw blood, pull hair, and we'll try and get urine for testing, and he'll go to UC Davis for a full and comprehensive necropsy, including toxicology, forensics, and tissue sampling. We'll take a close look at the heart to try to identify the cause of death." The last Kentucky Derby winner to die as a three-year-old was Swale in 1984 in what appeared to be similar circumstances, um, suspected sudden heart failure. I'll be talking in a few moments' time to Pete Ramzan, the clinical director from Rossdale's, the veterinary practice, leading veterinary practice in Newmarket, about what might cause a sudden heart failure in an equine athlete. But first of all, Jane Mangan is with me. Jane, desperately sad news, clearly fevered speculation This is a horse who has had to suffer real infamy through his his career after that controversial Kentucky Derby first past the post. But above all else, this is a a very sad end for him.
1: Absolutely. Look, Medina Spirit will forever be remembered as a controversial horse. Um, First past the post in the Kentucky Derby. We still wait news on that. But we probably should concentrate on how talented he was. Brilliant and the awesome again at Santa Anita. Just over a month ago, he was second in the Breeders' Cup Classic. And look, uh, the circumstances surrounding his death, uh, many people will go into detective mode. But ultimately, there has been samples taken. They will be tested and we will find out more in due course. But for the time being, in the, in the immediate aftermath, you know, you'd, you'd hate to see this with any horse, but particularly a horse that you kind of got the feeling there was more to come.
0: And it it's, yeah, clearly it's a, may sound a slightly daft thing to say, but it, it's not the horse's fault whatever has befallen him during his career. And, and the one thing that really characterised him through his races was an extraordinary toughness and will to win. He just wouldn't stop trying.
1: No, and all the way through even the Breeders' Cup Classic behind Nick's Go, he, he really ran to the line. Um, I, I think I'll remember him just absolutely devouring stiletto boy and express train. Um, when he kind of led from start to finish at Santa Anita and the Austin again. That was uh the abiding memory for me. Um look the the Churchill Downs race, the Kentucky Derby, make of it what you will, it was still a monster performance. Um and I suppose it's a little bit unsatisfactory that we still at the end of the year await results on that considering the race is run in May. Um but for me, Medina Spirit, he was just an extremely talented horse and it's a sad ending for him.
0: Yeah, and as has been pointed out by many people before me and better judges as well, whatever was found in his system after the Kentucky Derby, and there's clearly no excuse for that, there is no way that that topical treatment made him run any faster in that instance. That is notwithstanding whatever else you personally might think about the way the horse was trained or campaigned.
1: Yeah, that's a very, uh, an extremely valid point to make. Um, this was a horse that just had that natural ability. He was by an obscure sire in Patinico, uh, son of Giant's Causeway, who I had never heard of until uh, this horse came along. And I suppose he, he made it his own the hard way. And if you look at his form, he was tremendously consistent. He was never out of the first three. And um, as I said, when the news broke after his work yesterday, it was quite saddening.
0: All that said, Jane, and and I completely appreciate your your urging people not to speculate as to what has caused this horse's heart attack and not to besmirch people without significant evidence. There is no doubt because of the profile of the horse, there will be people seeking to um, put two and two together and suggest that his death was in some way a result of nefarious practice. And once again, the microscope will be on the horse racing industry, particularly in California, and the rate of fatalities, particularly in California, whether that be right or wrong.
1: Yeah, you only have to go online uh, on social media platforms to know that the there's quite a venomous attitude towards this topic. And a lot of People choose to jump to conclusions, and that has been the case. As soon as the news broke with Medina Spirit, it wasn't a a case of mourning the loss of a horse. It was more, let's use this as leverage to further enhance our argument. Um, But ultimately, that is just conjecture until anything is proven. It is a a pointless exercise. And look, they've taken hair samples, blood samples, and I believe they are trying to get urine as well. So there will be nothing missed on this horse. And while the microscope is there the vets have a job to do and I think we should just let them do it.
0: Well regular listeners to this podcast will have heard my next guest before he is Pete Ramzan he's the clinical director at Rossdale's the veterinary practice in Newmarket and he's with me now. Uh, Pete typically why does a thoroughbred racehorse die of a heart attack? Morning Nick.
2: Um, Racehorses get heart attacks for primarily different reasons to people. So in people it's clogged arteries from the the way we eat and live our lives. Whereas racehorses, um, racehorses have very big hearts, um, a lot of muscle mass uh, in their heart, um, and and the electrical circuits that, that keep that heart pumping and the blood pumping around the body. It, it's a very fine-tuned circuit. And and when something goes haywire with that circuit which is more likely to happen in a in a big big hunk of cardiac muscle um that's when that's when they have their you know an in inverted commas heart attack uh when when things go wrong with the with the wiring uh, it's usually a very transient thing um and quite often there's no evidence of it on a on a post-mortem it's it's the electrics that have gone wrong and and then the the horse dies usually, you know, in the middle of a race or just after a race or a
0: workout. What environmental factors, if any, would, uh, you know, exacerbate the the likelihood of a, of a heart attack? Is it to do with where you would train a horse, how you would train a horse, how much work, exercise, food? Is all of that con- contributory to that imbalance that you talk about?
2: Uh, look, I mean, like, you know, like all things electrical and... and physiologic there there, there's lots of factors feeding into it and electrolyte balance um is one of those things uh i guess it's something that we don't know a lot about because these things are very difficult to to unpick after the event you don't know what's happened with that horse you know at the precise moment that its heart's failed in terms of either the electrical messages going through the muscle or um or the the um, things that help conduct those messages to the to the muscle itself, which is the, ele- the electrolyte balance. Um, trying to unpick that after the horse has died is is impossible usually. Um, but ele- you know, it's, it's felt that horses, you know, when they're when they're when they're working at peak speed or racing, they're quite often functioning at their physiological limit you know whether that's in terms of heart or lungs or wind you know we know they they function at their physiological limit so if, if something one of those factors goes awry then that's when when problems can arise so yeah electrolytes um uh, weather conditions i guess all of those things can play into it but in terms of um do we see a, uh, a big um, a big difference in death rates from sudden you know sudden death rates heart, heart attacks so to speak in in racehorses depending on weather conditions or where they're trained um, I'm not sure there's any firm
0: evidence of that. Uh, Pete Ramzan there the clinical director at Rossdale's veterinary practice in Newmarket here in England more clearly to follow on the very sad death of Medina Spirit. On to matters much happier. And Rachel Blackmore, who has lit up racing in Ireland and indeed in Great Britain over the last year and became the first female jockey to win the Grand National, has been nominated in the World Sports Star category at this month's BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards. You have to go back an awful long way, Jane Mangan, to find the last horse racing individual to be nominated for this particular award would you hazard a guess as to who it might be
1: yeah well nick i won't lie to our listeners i did google it Uh,
0: and what did google (laughs) yield what did google (laughs) yield for you
1: i don't remember george moore in 1967 it was a little bit before my time but um yes australian jockey came and won a few classics and that was when racing was um, even bigger than it is now, much bigger than it is now. Did he win a derby, Nick?
0: 67 he came over, and he won the 1,000 guineas, the 2,000 guineas, and the derby. Uh, derby was huge then. The guineas were still pretty big in terms of um, proximity to national consciousness. And so for an Australian jockey to come over and go bang, 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 having already won a load of races for the Ali Khan in the late 50s, that's a, a no mean achievement. So he was the last... Um, It was called then the Overseas Sports Personality of the Year. It's now the BBC World Sports Star of the Year from the horse racing firmament. And that was back in 67. Good luck to Rachel Blackmore this year. Other notable um, winners of the BBC Sports Personality Awards. So the main award obviously went to Tony McCoy, champion jockey in 2010. Frankie DeTore, Holly Doyle, McCoy have all finished third in that event. But they're the only horse racing uh, people to have been involved in podium finishes for the, the main event, and the team, a couple of interesting teams have won, Jane, Team Nijinsky in 1970, and Aldeniti and Bob Champion in 1981.
1: Yes, the two iconic horses, names that kind of did transcend the sport, and hopefully we, we might have a few candidates for that in the not-too-distant future, but for now, we have a certain Rachel Blackmore up there with names that are iconic, um... And when I, this news broke yesterday, I immediately thought, "This is the coolest thing she might ever achieve."
0: And in fairness, Jane, she's achieved some pretty cool things already.
1: She has, but she's she's achieved momentous things. I just for a normal person to be a normal person, I say she's obviously extraordinary. But alongside Tom Brady and Novak Djokovic, Max Verstappen, and the fastest woman in the world, Elaine thompson her it's um, it's an amazing cap off for what is. Been a fairy tale year. You know, you go back to February, you're on the ground after coming off Manila Indo at the Dublin Racing Festival, you're looking up at the horse you could have ridden at Plutar, win the Savils Chase. A couple of weeks later, you're on at Plutar, getting beaten in the Gold Cup after having six winners at Cheltenham, absolutely dominating the festival in our sport. Um, then roll on that iconic win at, at Aintree. There will never be a first woman win the Aintree Grand National ever again. It was just. Absolute fair, little dream stuff. And then, fast forward two months, you're in Killarney, and you're after breaking your hip and your ankle. Probably the first thing you think about is a, a honeysuckle. Are you going to be back? And lo and behold, you're not just back for honeysuckle in the Hattons Race in November, but you're back to ride a Plutar who owes you a little bit of debt in the Betfair Chase, and absolutely dominating that in October. So from July to October, how many people would have been back from a broken hip and ankle? Um, and then she did, of course, team up with Honeysuckle in the Hatton's Grace. It has been an extraordinary year for her, but the work rate um, and the tenacity and the absolutely unrelenting attitude that that girl has, she deserves to be amongst those people. I, I, when I initially saw it, I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but of course she deserves to be there. It has been an extraordinary year and I think it's the ultimate compliment to cap it all off.
0: It has been an amazing autumn as well for female riders in Great Britain and in Ireland. You mentioned Rachel Blackmore winning the Betfair Chase at Haydock, the Hattons Grace Hurdle last weekend on on Honeysuckle. Uh, What about Bridget Andrews? She won the big race at Entry last weekend on on Protectorat. And of course, Bryony Frost won the uh, big race at Down Royal on on Frodon, and then the Tingle Creek on Grenatine last weekend. She, of course, will be in the news again this week for um, reasons that every single listener of this podcast will be well aware of. Um, Jane, you and I haven't had much of a chance to speak while this case has been going on, the BHA's um, case into allegations of um, bullying on the part of Robbie Dunn. Uh, What have you made of it so far?
1: Again, yeah, I've been listening to as much detail as I can, I think, regardless of the end result of this particular case, the landscape of the weighing room, is likely to change significantly in Britain. Um, it looked This week, we start today. Roderick Moore will make his case on behalf of Robbie Dunn. And there has been much to digest over the last couple of days. But in, in that respect, I enjoyed watching Bridget and Protectorat at, at Aintree. I think Protectorat, as a six-rising seven-year-old, might develop into the UK's leading Gold Cup uh, candidate. And uh, Grenatine, look, it was disappointing from an Irish perspective that Shacken didn't turn up, but it's not the first time he hasn't done that. And I think Paul Nichols' achievements are, are just incredible. 12 Tingle Creeks. And I always pay compliment to Henry de Bronhead for providing Rachel with the opportunity to, to realise her potential. And I think um, Paul Nichols deserves a great degree of credit for doing the same with Bryony because, she, you know, unwavering support for her. And I think giving her the opportunity in in, uh, a consistently a grade one level and to show her talents is what's needed. And nobody wins these races without being on the right horses and nobody's any exception to that. So I think Paul Nichols deserves uh, a brilliant uh, amount of credit for for what he has done for her and what he continues to do for himself.
0: Now, talking of trainers getting credit, Jane, did Gordon Elliott, who's dominated plenty of these podcasts in 2021, get the credit that he deserved for a pretty rare achievement at Navan at the weekend when saddling seven winners on one card and being the first man to do so?
1: I don't, I don't think so, Nick. If I'm honest, um, most cards here in Ireland are seven races. It just happened to be the case in Navan on Saturday. There was eight races. So he would have basically gone through a card on a normal day. And it's not just your run of the middle midweek card. It's, it's Navin on a Saturday, graded races, and um, a variety of different horses. Look, I, I kind of made the point over the weekend that Gordon maybe doesn't have a star, like a honeysuckle. He's highest-rated horses, I think, are Delta to work and Abacadabras, but he definitely has the young artillery coming through. And when you see Ginto dominate. You see these young novices coming through. These are the future. And uh, Gordon has operated obviously a very good strike rate since he's come back but i think that got missed in the midst of a tingle creek and a a john durkin and all these big races that were happening over the weekend that was quite the achievement
0: and jane any bits from Punchestown that you think worthy of, of further focus we we talked to patrick mullins at quite some length yesterday
1: Yes, well, I, I suppose for me, the, the best news of all was that um, Manila Times got up from that heavy fall that he took in the John Durkin. The John Durkin was a funny old race to watch. On end to me, he looked beaten halfway down the back. He never really looked that comfortable. Adaho looked like he wanted company, and people were citing that he needed a little bit of company to keep him concentrated. Well, he didn't need company in the Ryanair Chase last year. He did lean significantly left at Punchestown, and I think he's much better going right-handed uh, and thought he did well to win despite that. but. He was quite, he might have been lucky in another circumstance that Asterian Falange, the third last, looked like he was travelling really well in the hands of Brian Cooper. What could he end up being? That's a real question. Um, away from the big race, there was some notable performances. Glen Quinn Castle brought up seven in a row. Sander Clagan, 15 and bumper winner for Paul Nolan, a timely win for him off the back of losing his Stable Star uh, latest exhibition. Fernie Hollow was good in beating Curse Sublime. Um, in the beginner's chase he obviously is never straightforward but I thought he was quite good and I thought look Kilcroat got beaten in Cork everybody's talking about him get beaten but don't forget he got beaten by a good horse Largy debut the pair of them pulled 24 lengths clear of the third I think maybe Chris Jones is a good horse in his hands there and Dysart Dynamo a lot of our UK listeners mightn't have been familiar with his name before now the Dicer Dynamo was a good bumper horse last year, and he looks like he's going to be a real recruit over fences. And one other thing worth mentioning was, look, at the moment, William Mullins is operating without his stable jockey, Paul Townend. I hope that he returns from injury soon. We haven't heard a lot of news on that. But it was a time for somebody else to step up to the plate. And on Sunday, Sean O'Keefe took two pivotal rides for Willie having taken a ride in the Labrooks Trophy uh, the week before but concertista made her chase debut in grade Tree company and he got the job done on her before of course that high pressure ride on an where he went hammer and thongs with notebook a 162 rated chaser a brilliant jumper and ultimately when they went so quick an was the only horse that could sustain that gallop and notebook ended up trotting across the line so well done to sean o'keefe i think he's a guy we're going to hear a lot about and i suppose an is too
0: at what distance would you like to see an Egerman campaigned this season?
1: I would like him to become Willie Mullins' first Queen Mother champion chase winner. Mm,
0: so would I. But I suspect they might go up.
1: With the demise of Shakan at the weekend and it looks like they mightn't have a star two-miler. I don't know why you'd go up and trip with an
0: Hey, You're writing off Shaqan Puswa quite quickly though, aren't you? Off the back of one dismal run yeah. when there was clearly something wrong with him.
1: Yeah, but he's travelled three times now. He's ran twice terribly and he didn't even make the track the other time so I I wouldn't be putting all my eggs in his basket
0: Well, sad news of the death of one of the most charismatic horses to race in sprint races anywhere in the world in the last couple of decades, that horse, Choisir, who completed a remarkable double at Royal Ascot in 2003 and rather opened the floodgates for what was to follow over the next few years. The man who rode him to victory in both the King Stan Stakes and what was then called the Golden Jubilee Stakes on the Saturday uh, is Johnny Mercer, who joins me now. Johnny, there are many great horses you've been associated with. Just where would you place this one in terms of the the impact that he left on you?
3: Well, the impact he left on me and left on the world, I suppose, he was unique. Um, come from Australia. He ran in the, um, the King Stands the first day. Spoke to the trainer. They were very bullish about him. I watched his videos. He ran down the straight in uh, Flemington really strong. So kind of fancied him a little bit going there. But when I seen him in the parade ring, I'll never forget the size of him. The big black shields which... We don't see much horses running much in 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 Europe, and especially not in a Group One sprint. Um, you know, he was just um, my first impression was, my God, this horse looks enormous, and the poor little guy leading him round was getting dragged around the old parade ring in Ascot. We were doing a half speed like walking around round the the, um, the parade ring, and I couldn't like the trainer said to me, he's got two speeds, Johnny, slow. And very fast, so just be careful getting him to the start. But hey, it was um, it was a wonderful day. And when he won the King Stands, and the trainer says to me, "Oh, we're going to run him on, yeah, you know, on Thursday in the in the in the Golden Jubilee," I thought he. I, I said, "What? What's this all about? Oh, he'd be better. He'd be better next time out." He said he was fresh today, so he'd, he'd be even better next time out. So.
0: <laughs> and he was. And he was, wasn't he?
3: He was, he was, yeah, he uh, he'd, um, he'd a difficult draw the second day, you know, the first day went pretty simple, he jumped, he broke the gates really well, he travelled strongly, he was never in doubt, stepping him up to six furlongs the next day, you know, as he said, the freshness was off him, he was more manageable, and I could ride a race, and drifted across from a wide draw, and again, isn't he, to answer your question, he'd be right up there with the top sprinters I've ridden in my career.
0: And just the, the as you say, the legacy he left. Then we got these Australian sprinters coming over for that for that period, really for that decade, and, and coming over and dominating Miss Andretti and take over Target and all those. And if it hadn't been for him, I don't think it would have happened.
3: No, he was kind of the first one that really came over, and and uh, um, but he had like like great horses on race horses don't make great stallions. But he had a, he, he was just tough. He was hardy. And he brought that then into the into the the covering sheds as well because all of his horses were like that as well, very similar to him. Durable, quick, hardy. Went on fast ground. Went on soft ground. Um, yeah. Like sometimes you don't know what's going to make a great stallion, but that that toughness and that speed that he had, I suppose. Um, it, it it did. It, it, it opened the floodgates for the Aussies to come over and dominate Australia for a couple of
0: years. Yeah, and actually, just looking through his stud record, not only did he produce a lot of winners in, in both um, hemispheres, but good ones as well. Olympic Glory, probably the best. Star Spangled Banner, a horse you'd be extremely familiar with. Secret Weapon, Stimulation, lots of good horses.
3: Yes, very like himself. Tough, hardy, um, and yeah, as I said, sometimes they don't... In the, in, in, in the paddocks what they did on the racetrack but he certainly did and it was uh, it was a great time it was a great time the, you know the, the, the trainer was the trainer was a great great man Paul Perry really got a great kick out of, you know like meeting the Queen and you know coming to Royal Ascot and it, it, you know I think like when you see all the comments on Twitter this morning he, he did he, he he set the he set the bar high for the Australians and knew they could compete then with the sprinters and They came in their droves, and and they still do. They love Ascot. The, The Australians love Royal Ascot.
0: Well, it is Tuesday, and we go around the bloodstock world with our good friends at Weatherby's. I don't have to go too far afield today. We're back to Ireland, and I'm checking in with Douglas Taylor, who's made significant investment in Irish, primarily national hunt bloodstock in the last few years, including in two exciting stallions Jettaway who's made a significant impression and dxb who you'll remember as a, a very very tough stay we'll talk about him in a few moments time but douglas really i'm i'm only scratching the surface um just tell me a little bit about where your love for national hunt racing and breeding stems from uh, nick that's
4: a big question um i started off with ponies as a young fella my, my... My family was small farmers and they had no real interest in horses, but a neighbour had, had a pony and I was mad in love with having a pony. So my parents eventually got me a pony and that was the start of it all. Um, and I was in and out of horses. Kind of. I, I did a bad show job I was younger and then I progressed to do hunting. And I was in and out of horses with, with business and, and um, I came back in, into horses probably my, my late 20s and I decided I was going to buy a few horses. And uh, I started off with a few pint Um and my, my first one happened to be lucky. And uh, she won a few races in, in, in a row, and that kind of got me hooked from there on.
0: And so what happened then? Well, then um, I, I, I sought some advice,
4: um, and uh, the guy I spoke to, he, he asked me one important question. He said, Douglas are you a lucky person? and I thought about it for a minute and I said yeah I've been pretty much lucky in life because one thing you need in horse business is luck and uh, so he, he, was, he had a good bit experience in the industry so he's actually the guy who bought me Sam Crow's mother and also finally approached his mother this one guy so we came together and we went to acquire some, some, some horses and
0: that's what we ended up with I mean everyone would love to breed a horse as good as as sam crow but given how much hype surrounded him in his early days is there any sense that it's been a bit of a disappointment or not not at all not
4: at all um hype is what the business is about really um very rarely is 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 the hype ever delivered on um and that's why probably i like this trainer racing uh, so much because it's all about hype and excitement and you know, it's not always delivered on, but I think, I think he, Sam Crow was a very exciting horse and he, he delivered uh, a lot of the way, uh, but didn't deliver the whole way, but sure, most of them don't.
0: And talk to me a little bit about the stallions now and why you wanted to get into the stallion business, because it's not something that attracts everybody, even if they're quite well resourced. Exactly. Uh, I was very
4: naive when I got into horse, the stallion business. It was purely by, by, uh, by accident. Uh, I had a desire to get a, a horse good enough to run it, in the Melbourne Cup. I was fr- friending up with Richard Brown and uh, he referred me to his, his, his colleague, Stuart Bowman. And we, we targeted to get a horse for good enough to go to Australia that would we'll be able to compete in, in the lake of the Melbourne Cup and the Coffee Cup and those sort of races. Um, and we ended up getting a horse, uh, not, not a gelding or not, not a mare, uh, just, by, just by accident. Um, I sent him down to Australia and that was a whole new, a new learning curve for me down there, a whole new market, very exciting market let me tell you. Uh, And way went down there, he was very successful at the start, but he failed, he failed to get as far as the the Melbourne Cup he got injured on the way, uh, but he won a lot of races on the way and uh, then I was left with a horse that um, had no further purpose for racing and I didn't know what to do with him, so most people thought it was crazy bringing him back to Ireland, um, but I decided to bring him back home here and try and stand him as a stallion. Um, he's, he has a wonderful pedigree and he's wonderful for uh, and he's a serious desire to win, so I thought that was enough to stand him as a stallion. So I brought him back to Ireland and um, I contacted all the studs, and not, not very many of them replied, let me tell you. Um, but Arctic Attack so Stud did, he came up to see the horse. Uh, straight away, he said he was interested in the horse, and me and him clicked uh, personality-wise, and we just we just went at it from there. He had the experience, and um, the client base to start to start off, and we worked together to get the,
0: to get to get the, the stallion established. And he's incredibly busy now. He's covered the last uh, three crops: two hundred and eighty-eight mares, two hundred and sixty odd, I think, and then two hundred and seventy-nine this year.
4: Yeah, no, Jedeway is a bit of a freak. Uh, that's what he's known as uh, how he's been so successful is, is, is unknown probably a lot, a lot to do with himself. himself we, we have helped him along the way uh, both myself and Owen um, I've supported the stallion uh, at every turn from the get go I've been there at the sales range buying back and my model is to, is to support my own stallions um, buy by the best I can and produce them to be pint to pinters. so I've done that from, from the start with right Jenoe and and um, also, he's been, he's been a freak. like His first few runners in point to points have been winners uh, from very, very low pedigrees. Like, just loads of mayors were. Uh, the mayor's 23 years old, never produced a winner, and first time out, point to point winner by Jeddoway. So, he's a little bit of a freak in, in, in his own right. Uh, I think when he gets a, a better base of mayors,
0: which he has now, he could end up anywhere, you know. And, and DXB was hard as nails on the race course. How's he doing in the breeding shed? Uh, it, uh, development is very, very good.
4: He had all the credentials, you know. He, he started off at seven furlongs. Uh, his first race, his last, last race was two miles three. He handled all ground, handled heavy ground, soft ground, good ground. He, he was very progressive. Uh, I, yet again, like Cheddarway, he's a wonderful personality, temperament. He, he aims to please, so he's going down very well the breeders. I'm, I'm very confident he'll have
0: a very, very busy season this year. And Douglas, you've had a, a very varied life as a, an owner, a breeder, a man who stands stallions, buys mares, foals, yearlings, whatever. You also love a punt. You landed a monumental gamble that went down in, in in Irish racing folklore a few years ago. And you said, really, you didn't do it for the money. You just did it for the crack, because you could. Are you still at that? Uh, always. Like, I'm, in, I'm in racing, not
4: for the money. Uh, I'm in racing... Uh, I enjoyed the business aspect of it, I enjoyed the racing, but I enjoyed the crack most of all, Uh, and cracking in all all aspects of it, breeding the horses, going racing the horses, gambling on the horses, like Cheltenham has many different lures, but gambling is definitely one of those, and there's nothing like going going to Cheltenham with with a bag of cash, uh, and a bit of luck, and see how it pans out to you, so I enjoyed that,
0: and and I, I will always enjoy that. I'd say I'd follow your advice, but as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of this interview, you need to be lucky by nature, not just by name. Well, yeah, I think
4: my name should be Douglas Lucky, uh, or Douglas Luck, uh, maybe, because I have been very lucky. Uh, From a very small breeder, I had two mares when I started off, and both of them went to Cheltenham, and one in
0: Cheltenham, and that happened to very few people. Been a real pleasure to talk to you, Douglas, and best of luck at the sales today. Thank you very much, Nick. Douglas Taylor, and thanks to all my guests today. Now, we cannot leave you without a tip, but first, we cannot leave you without congratulating, well, two of this podcast's own. Um, We are very much claiming them today. Lydia Hislop became the Horse Race Writers and Photographers Association Broadcaster of the Year for the second year in three. Yesterday, uh, at a ceremony in London's Royal Lancaster Hotel, uh, and at the same um, Derby Awards, Lee Mottershead, was named Racing Writer of the Year for the third time, joining the late uh, Alan Lee and his Racing Post colleague Alistair Down as a three-time winner of that prestigious award. So, Jane, I think I think we're claiming them as uh, as two for the podcast.
1: I, I think both uh, Lydia and Lee will appreciate that it's probably the podcast that got them the award, and uh, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> They, they have been uh, consistent, I think, is the best compliment that anybody could get, Consistent, uh, consistently brilliant and uh, well-deserved. And I, I'm just watching on from the the cold Kildare paddocks here at Goffs, um, it, w- it looked like quite the night, Nick. So well done for being up bright and sparky this morning to cover an, uh, another podcast.
0: And Jane, do you have a tip for us?
1: Yes, well, I'm here in in Goffs and I'm bracing Storm Barra. So we're seeking a little bit of shelter and I hope to get in to see the Fontwell race at 2.20 where Muna Macaruna, Alan King and Tom Cannon had a big winner at the weekend. Edward Stone was very good and hopefully Muna Macaruna can be very good too at Fontwell today at 2.20.
0: Jane, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Tuesday, December the 7th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye.